Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you to all, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, the J-Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to them. Of course, this pod is on all platforms, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to increase the visibility of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. In turn, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so that I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, and credible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen to and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to the website for more information about me, the pod, archive shows at www.jreels.com. I appreciate you all. I thank you very much for listening, trusting, and believing in me. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J Reels Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well. It's another holiday Monday, a President's Day, but there is no off day when it comes to what is happening across the sports landscape, and here to dissect, project, and even resurrect it all is yours truly as this is the J Reels Podcast. For my first timers, welcome aboard, and for those who've been banging with me for now 178 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Again, it's a Monday, February the 15th in the year of our Lord 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what to expect here on this podcast is as follows. The Super Bowl and NFL season has passed, but not when it comes to news off the field, as quite a bit has taken place over the last seven days, and I'm not even talking about Tom Brady's Lombardi pass on the river and subsequent stumble out of the boat during the celebration last Wednesday. I'll get into all that's going on with the Shield, lots that have taken place over the last week, so be sure to stay tuned for that, as well as what's going on with the NHL, man. More teams are being forced to postpone games due to COVID, and they've updated their protocols over the last few days, but the league has to not only be concerned, but wonder whether or not this season is going to be in danger because there have been a lot of games postponed and a lot that aren't even on the schedule to be replayed at a future date. So I'll explain that later on, as well as what's happening in the NBA as Utah continues its hot streak, and I've been talking about them over the last few weeks. So I have a couple of words on that, as well as Mark Cuban and the whole national anthem blunder. Many other topics to discuss across the association. I'll even bring you up to speed on the latest down under at the Australian Open. Kamaru Usman retaining his title in the MMA and a disastrous 
Daytona 500? What? Jay Reel's talking about NASCAR? What the hell's going on here? It is a sports show, people, so you know I'm going to dive in just a little bit as I get into all that, plus my hero and zero of the week. But it is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. Or so it seems. From the final seconds of the Super Bowl to, quite frankly, opening day of baseball, although March Madness does have a say in this, this is a dimension in anticipation. We have now entered the Sports Dead Zone Part 1. Wherever Rod Serling is, I'm sure he'd be very proud of that opening. And for those who didn't comprehend that, it's from the old classic TV show, The Twilight Zone. And I'm not talking about the latest iteration of the CBS redo. I'm talking about the 1959 to 1964, 65, however long it was back then with the classic theme, the opening, etc., And now that we've come to the first break where the sports world doesn't remain quiet altogether, but exhales just a little bit after the college and NFL seasons have crowned champions, the lengthy winter sports, albeit aborted by COVID in the NBA and NHL, and a college basketball season that no one cares about until the middle of next month, this is one of the, as I like to call, two dead zones that takes a pause right before it really picks up again. And in this case, once we get to the start of April... We have the baseball, obviously the Masters, both the NBA and NHL playoffs. Although they may be preempted until May, considering the way the season started and a little bit late, but we get the picture when it comes to the postseasons, usually starting in April in both of those winter sports. You have the NFL draft, the Final Four. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. But we'll have to wait another six weeks until us fans and the sports universe will get its lungs with an overabundance of sports that will have our head spinning, our mouths chattering through the spring and into summer. So let's get right to it. What is there to discuss? Well, ironically, even in this dead zone, based on the J Reels What's the Deal segment, there is a lot that I could sink my teeth into. Which generally right now, we're digging for some sports to talk about. And yes, I know the basketball and the hockey and even college basketball to a certain extent. But... This is one of those zones where we have to pretty much hope for some stories or for some news or angles, rumors, whatever, just to percolate to keep this podcast on the tracks and going as fast as we possibly can. But at least for this week, we will be off and running here with a lot to get into. And I'm going to start it off with this, a little unconventional, but speaking of six weeks, Six weeks ago today, on January the 4th, I came out with the angle of Major League Baseball starting pitchers and catchers reporting this week, where now it has finally arrived. That's how fast time flies, people. It's just amazing. I don't have to tell you in a blink of an eye how we could go from an NFL postseason at the very beginning, which seemed like three minutes ago, and then now we're pretty much on the eve of camps in Arizona and in Florida opening to get ready for baseball season that will happen on April the 1st. And some of the things that I took over the past week, and without getting into any type of storylines or even get into what to look for as these camps raise their curtain for all 30 teams to get themselves primed and ready to go for a long baseball season, and we'll have to wait and see how that unfolds with COVID, of course, but... Some of the things that I took away from as I lead into this segment 
And first and foremost, I almost fell out of my chair where baseball prospectus, who are very reputable in what they do. I used to be in contact with a writer from baseball prospectus back in the day, John Parado, a very esteemed baseball writer out of Pittsburgh. But when I noticed that in the National League, and in particular the National League East, when they had their final projected standings, that they had the Mets winning the division with 96 wins, the first thing I thought to myself was, how the hell did they come up with that? Did they have a season of MLB The Show, the video game, generate those results? I was almost appalled by that. How does anybody, from the grand scheme of things, 30,000 feet looking down, could project a baseball season where a particular team is going to win that amount of games? Well, the first thing people could say, Jay Reels, well, how do you think Vegas comes up with these numbers for the over-unders for a regular season? That's a little bit different because they can look at the team and say, all right, this is what I think they'll be or obviously what they're going to project to be. But at the same time, for however they utilize this, for baseball perspectives to think that the Mets are going to be penciled in at 96 and 66, uh, I'd like to know how in the hell did they come up with that formula? Because when you look at that division, and I understand that the Phillies, who didn't do much this offseason, I get that they resigned JT Real Muto and Didi Gregorius, but they didn't really do much as far as their bullpen is concerned or even their starting pitching. Jake Arietta looks like he's going to go back to the Cubs, and Arietta isn't the same guy that he was five, six years ago. And then the Nationals, although they've made some moves and made some deals, and you think they'd be a lot better than what they were last year, but people think they're going to be somewhere in the mid-80s. And baseball prospectus, come on. For the Atlanta Braves to win the division three straight years, and for them to come up with the Braves being in fourth place with 82 wins, if I question how the Mets are going to get the 96 wins that they proclaim and foresee happening this coming season, then what did they come up with for the Braves to win 82 games? When we know that they've upgraded their pitching, bringing in Charlie Morton, we know about the young pitching that they have, and Mike Soroka is going to come back from his Achilles, and a lot of the moves that they made in this offseason, you mean to tell me that they're going to drop down precipitously from, now I get last year was just a 60-game season, but they have won a division three straight years, and why all of a sudden will they fall off a cliff to the point where they would be ahead of the Marlins in the National League East? I just don't get that. And to me, it doesn't make any sense. So that's the first thing. And coming from a Met fan myself, yes, does that look great? Does it look like, oh, wow, they have them picked to win 96 games? If I was 15 or 16 years old, I may jump up and down. But when you get to my age and you've watched baseball as many years as I have and knowing how cynical and jaded I can be at times when it comes to this team, I just laugh at that. Because no matter how much the Mets will try to get reinforcements and you think that they will throughout the course of the season and they have done so just over the past week knowing that Seth Lugo is going to be out with the elbow injury and he's going to need surgery and we're probably not going to see him sometime until the spring and by them signing guys like Tommy Hunter and Mike Montgomery alright, is it going to whet your appetite if you're a Met fan? No and it is a scrap heap bargain basement type of signings understood but at the same time it's not as if the Mets are sitting on their hands like the owners and the GMs of the past, even though Sandy is part of this mix, as he was back in the mid to 
thousands or mid twenty teens, and all you could do is just hope that the Mets will continue to press all the right buttons and trying to procure talent and trying to make sure that this team, which has very lofty expectations, to get to where they need to go this year, and hopefully that will culminate in a World Series appearance. But for me, in seeing that number by baseball perspectives, I, I just couldn't believe it. And I don't know what's worse, the Mets at 96 or the Braves at 82. So even though we are far from opening day and we're far from getting those warm thoughts in our blood and in our soul to get to smell the green grass, to get the thoughts of wearing short sleeves and shorts, because here in the Northeast and pretty much throughout the Eastern part of this country, we're going to get bombarded with cold air and ice, rain and snow over the course of the next few days. Although we're still far away from that, I thought I'd kick us off here with a little bit of baseball and now I could get into some news and notes that had happened throughout the course of the last week. And Major League Baseball are going to bring back some rules from 2020, whether it's the runner on second base in the 10th inning, the seven inning double headers, because you know there's going to be games that are going to be made up throughout the course of the year. Now, as of yet, there's no universal DH, which I'm torn about that because as a lifelong National League fan, I don't like the DH. I understood why they did it last year and even came to liking it, but I know it was more of an experiment at that time. But I would think for this year, they should use the universal DH. The reason why the Players Association balked at that is because they want to use that as a chip when it comes to Armageddon later on this year. And I've talked about that time after time week after week on the podcast. So they don't want to give the owners everything because they know if they do that, then they're setting themselves up for a disaster. And as it is, it's a disaster between the players and the owners as a right to second. So you can only imagine what it's going to be like when we get to the end of the year, once the CBA expires, and how that's just going to be an all-out war. I hate to use that word in that regard, but that's what it's going to be, people. Because anything short of that is going to be a miracle. So that's why they haven't, proposed on the DH as of yet. Who knows? Maybe once we get into spring training and closer to the start of the season, maybe they will incorporate that. Remains to be seen. Also, you have Yadier Molina coming back for his 18th season in St. Louis with the Nolan Arenado trade and with Molina, who a lot of people thought he could have been going elsewhere this upcoming year, but that's not going to be the case. He is a mainstay in St. Louis. We all know that he's a guy that's going to be in my heart a Hall of Famer down the road. So Molina is still part of the fabric there with the Cardinals. You had a trade last week where Andrew Benatendi went to Kansas City. So the killer bees of the outfield just two years ago winning a World Series, really three when you think about it now, with the Boston Red Sox are now gone where Betts is in LA. Jackie Bradley is looking for a team and now Benatendi is in Kansas City. Part of that three-team deal with the Mets. And also with the Kansas City Royals, where the Mets get an outfield prospect, Khalil Lee. As we know, the Mets have a dearth of outfield positions there in the minor league. So they bring in a guy that hopefully could be part of the team in the coming future. So let's see how that pans out. And then, thankfully, the Mets don't have to look at Justin Turner. Because although they've been rumored in so many deals over the last few weeks, and Justin Turner being one of them, The guy's 36 years old. I didn't want an older player coming back here. And chances are, if Turner would have signed with the Mets, and here comes the cynical Jaden Met fan that I am, he would have reverted back to the Justin Turner when he was in Queens 
in the early part of his career from about, what, 2011 to 2014. And not a knock, but we just know that the Mets have had bad luck when it comes to that. But he re-signs with LA, two years, $34 million, so he'll be part of the defending World Series champs there for the next two years. Now, the Mets are also rumored with Chris Bryant and Matt Chapman, the third baseman from the Oakland A's. What they're going to give up, who knows? As I mentioned, they do not have a huge farm system the Mets do. So we'll have to wait and see if that comes to fruition over the course of the next few days. And speaking of Mets, or in this case, ex-Mets, Jay Bruce and Matt Harvey both signed minor league deals with the Yankees and Orioles respectively. So we'll see how much gas they have left in the tank with those two guys. And then lastly, James Paxton, the former Yankee, goes back to Seattle on a one-year, $8 million deal. So let's see what he could do for this season and hopes to get the big payday once this whole CBA clears up, if it ever does, next year. So are you guys ready for some spring training? The crack of the bats in the batting cage, the pop of the catcher's mitts. Hopefully that'll get your blood pumping for some baseball as pitchers and catchers report this week and to get the exhibition season started in just about 11 days from now. I believe the 26th is when both the Cactus and Grapefruit Leagues will kick off. So just to kind of get a little warm and fuzzy there and let's transition to now the cold and chilly winter sports where I'll turn my attention to the NBA and got a lot going on there with injuries and big players that may be down for some time. And we'll start off in L.A. with Anthony Davis, who we aggravated that Achilles, the right one, in Denver yesterday in the second quarter to where the Lakers, who had won seven in a row leading up to last night, with Davis being out there late in the second quarter and not coming back to play in the second half, the Lakers ended up losing in Denver. And now we have to wait and see the status of a 1AD who is going for an MRI today in Minnesota. And the Lakers, I believe they play tomorrow against the Timberwolves. But we all know if Davis goes down for any considerable amount of time, best be it now, have him ready come postseason, and then make a run for a second straight title. Because if they force Davis back, and remember, Davis missed two games last week with the Achilles, came back on Friday, Played pretty well, and then look what happened yesterday. So if the Lakers have any chance of repeating, we all know that Davis has to be in the lineup, and you think that they're going to proceed with caution from here on out because if that Achilles were to go, remember, they invested four years, $194 million in this player. We know what happens with Achilles. It's going to take some time back. Just look at Kevin Durant, and I'm going to get to him in a second. So everybody in L.A., Tinseltown, holding their collective breaths to make sure that the MRI, I'm sure, will come back negative. Davis did say that he does feel fine. He's just got to work out some things, as I'm paraphrasing here. But it doesn't seem to be anything serious or with any severity to know that this could be a long-term thing. And when I mean long-term, I'm talking about being out for months. You know, if he's going to be out a week or two or even, let's say, three weeks, it's not going to matter because the Lakers could be an eight seed in the Western Conference, and as long as he's back come late April into May, 100% ready to go, the Lakers are going to be a threat no matter what. So that's what you got there with Davis. As far as Kevin Durant goes, he's going to be out the next two games with a hamstring strain. He must have suffered that in a game against the Golden State Warriors on Saturday as they play Sacramento and part of this five-game West Coast trip that they're in the midst of. And we know about the Rand scenario, not necessarily with the Achilles, but him having to be up until this past Friday, 
not playing due to COVID restrictions and him being in close contact with an employee who was a driver who had come down with COVID the week before. And we all know this is Durant's team. If you ask me, when you look at these three players, it all boils down to what's going to happen with number seven. Because even if you have Kyrie and James Harden in the backcourt and they're explosive as it is, but we all know without Kevin Durant there, as far as this year goes and having any type of championship aspirations, it all falls on his shoulders. And you know that they're going to take precaution here. We'll see if these two games is going to be enough for him to rehabilitate and come back with the same explosive force that he has shown here so far this year. And again, it's all about the postseason when it comes to the Brooklyn Nets. Same for the Lakers, as we know, but they could also be an eighth seed in the Eastern Conference. A little bit more fragile because this is a unit that is still looking to gel. They're still trying to find their chemistry. They're still looking to get themselves to the top. And slowly but surely, they're doing that of the, in the Eastern Conference. But without Durant, you can forget about it. So we'll continue to monitor that as we move along. And speaking of Kyrie and even James Harden, for that matter, Kyrie earlier this week or last week came out and said that James Harden is the point guard that had a meeting and said that you're going to be the guy that's going to facilitate this offense. It takes a lot of pressure off of him to be the point and to be that guy that's going to make his teammates better. It actually is a little bit of a break for Kyrie because so much has been expected out of him and everything that's transpired this year with his absence and negligence, whatever you want to call it. So to have Harden as part of the team, he knows that, yes, he could penetrate He could play make when he wants to, but knowing that Harden is going to be the guy that's the orchestrator of this offense, that he could pretty much leave it to him, which does take a little bit of pressure off of Irving, but we all know with the money that he's making and the expectations, it doesn't matter. He's still going to be one of the guys at the end of the day that's an integral part of this team. We understand it's all about Durant. In my eyes, without him, they're not going to go very far, but they're going to need Irving and Harden all to coalesce and all to be a cohesive unit in order for them to get to where they want to go. And then lastly, with Harden, it's too late to do any type of damage control if you're Harden and what happened there with his exit in Houston, him coming out saying that it's not who I am, I don't like that negative energy, there was a lot that I went through there during those however many weeks or months leading into the season. And I don't want to hear it. I mean, that's all nonsense if you ask me. Harden just needs to own up and said, listen, I wanted out. I knew I wasn't going to be part of this team or didn't want to be part of this team anymore. And it was time for me to move on. If you would have came out and said that, you would respect him more. But how could he come out and say, it's not who I am. I don't like this negative energy. When that's all he did leading up to training camp, him being negligent as well going to all these various parties in Atlanta and Las Vegas and showing up late and overweight. Uh, Please, nobody wants to hear that now. He was better off just going the other way and being honest with himself to say, yes, I want it out. And sorry, Houston fans, I get I was there for eight years and we had a lot of great memories, but I wanted to go to be a champion elsewhere because it's not going to happen there in Houston. Yeah, the fans would hate him, but now they're going to despise him even more based on those comments. So, listen, this trio... It's going to be boom or bust. And we know this net team, as the way it's constructed, they're going to win a lot of games in the 130s and they're going to have to win that way. Because defensively, not only have they been compromised because of this trade, 
But nobody's going to confuse this team with the 90s Bulls defense or any of the other great defensive teams that we've seen here throughout NBA history. We know that in order for them to go to the finals and even win a final, they're going to have to outscore these teams like we've never seen before. So that's the bottom line with the Nets. And sticking with the East, the Celtics, boy, they've hit the skids here. And when you look at just these last two games, how you lose to the bottom feeders of the East at home against the Pistons, and then in a game in Washington yesterday where although the score was 104-91, but it was a lot closer than the final indicated to where Kemba Walker has come out and said that we need to play harder, agreed by the coach. You could kind of say that's a knock on Brad Stevens by what Kemba said. But this team, for whatever the reason, they have not been on the same page. I don't know if it's because of what took place earlier in the year with the COVID situation and the players. We know this team is propelled by its two young players, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Kemba Walker certainly has to contribute there and be the guy that not only is the point guard of this team, but he's going to be the third option and has to be a very productive option. We know the status of his health. Although it's been a little bit better, but you can't really trust it 100% because he is a guy that's going to be in and out of this lineup depending on how that knee holds up. And bottom line is this team, without the size and even more so the bench, and we could go crazy about the rookie Pritchard all we want and jump up and down with his praise. And even though he just recently came back out of being out of the lineup, but the Jeff Teagues of the world who's been awful since he's been here, Tristan Thompson's a guy that granted championship pedigree, but can you really trust 100% not only to be productive on the floor, but also to get on the floor when it comes to his body and to him being injury prone at times? This team, based on its youth and its young stars, is not going to be enough to carry this team deep into June and July. Now, we got to wait and see. Does Ainge have a trick up his sleeve? Does that mean he's going to look to the Pistons and maybe bring in a guy like Andre Drummond who would be an upgrade? And that's not a rumor, that's not anything, that's just me speaking here, my opinion. A guy like that would certainly bolster this team, not only from an offensive rebounding standpoint, just for presence, etc., but that's another guy you can't really trust 100% because he floats in and out of these games. And who knows, maybe he comes to a team that has a winning culture, winning players, granted they haven't won anything, but we all know the Celtics and the brand, etc., maybe that will reinvigorate and rejuvenate him, and knowing that He's looking for a big contract after this year. Maybe he'll play to the level that we know that he can. But can you trust him 100% if he were to be a part of this team? Hmm. They are now 13-13, and 13, which is the latest that they've been at 500 for the first time in about six years. Or somewhere around that. So hopefully they could right in the ship and get themselves off and running there. Because without Marcus Smart, who as we all know is not only the heart and soul, but also the blood and guts of this team... With that calf injury he suffered against the Lakers until he comes back. The integrity and the true grit of this team has not been in this lineup. And you could see that here just based on these last two games. I mean, how could you lose? If you're a team that has aspirations of being at the top or near the top of the East to lose to those two teams. And it could happen. Understood. You could go to Washington and lose a game like that, but not get blown out. You lose a close game to the Wizards, they're an NBA team. But there's no excuse for them to drag their asses up and down the court. And even though they make it look good and cosmetically at the end of the game with the final score, but please. And then to lose to the Pistons there at home two nights prior. 
doesn't make any sense if you're trying to go to those lofty championship aspirations that you have in Boston. And who knows if uh, Mr. Brad Stevens is going to face a little fire there over the course of the next few weeks, considering how the team is played. So, But the hottest team in the league, and I've said this time after time, and hopefully I won't have to repeat myself, but the Utah Jazz continues this torrid streak where they had an eight-game winning streak until they finally lost there. Off the top of my head, I forgot against two. It may have been against Denver. And then they have now rolled off seven in a row to the tune of 15 of 16. They had the best record in the NBA by far, 22-5. and five. Now, only the Lakers are a game and a half behind them. Now, remember, they just finished with a seven-game winning streak of their own before losing to Denver. But going back to that exchange on the TNT post-game inside the NBA where Shaq and Donovan Mitchell, and I know I brought that up a couple of times, so if you've listened over the last few episodes of the podcast, you'll know where I'm going with this. And they've elevated their play, unlike I would think we've seen going back to the days of John Stockton and Carmelo. And here they are, perched at the top of the West, very lofty company with the Lakers and Clippers looking up on them. But as I've said it before, and I'll say it again, as great as they played here, give them credit, all the kudos in the world. Relentless, maybe Donovan Mitchell's taking it personal from Shaq a little bit. He's kind of rallied the team even more so. But this will not mean squat if they can't do this in the latter part of the spring into the summer. Bottom line, because nobody's going to remember this streak if they lose in the second round of the playoffs. To me right now, and this is even being a little bit generous, with the way they performed so far this year, you would say finals are bust, but they have to make a conference final. Now, it would be better if they made a final, and that would be an upset in its own right. And I know the suits at ABC, they'll start spitting out their Sauvignon Blanc faster than you could say NBA finals, because we all know they want to have the Lakers back, or even the Clippers for that matter, because they've never even reached an NBA final. And just to have the LA market part of the NBA's finals mix is something that they would hope for. But for Utah, in order for them to really stamp themselves as a bona fide championship contending team, and we've seen it so far, but I need to see this in the spring. Bottom line, no offense either. Not knocking Donovan Mitchell, not knocking Rudy Gobert, not knocking the organization, top to bottom. Give them credit. But they have to make the conference finals. Because if they end up with a record, let's just say, what are they on a pace right now? They're 22 and 5. So if you do the math quick, 44 and 10. I mean, they're on a pace to win in the upper 50s. Maybe go 55 and 17, we'll say. And if they do that, that's incredible. Because that would be on a pace to win 60 games in a regular NBA season. But they cannot. I repeat, they cannot have this type of performance or a regular season. Granted, there's still a hell of a lot left of the season to go. But the early returns are, I am not sold on this team. I need to see it more when it absolutely matters, when the money's on the line. And as we all know, they could have the one seed in the West and have this dominant regular season. But if you're, I won't even say the Clippers, but if you're the Lakers, you think they're going to be afraid if it's 2-2 or even down 3-1 to go to Utah and not be able to win that game or afraid of a game seven in Utah, I'm sure that's a situation if it were to come to that, they would relish that. So by any means, Utah got this dominant regular season and even dominant at home. And if it's 2-2, 3-1 or 3-3, 
where the Lakers have to go there for a game seven, are you going to be shaking in your boots as a Laker fan to think you can't win that game or win a game five? And I would say the same for Denver because look at last year with Denver and Utah, and I get it was in the bubble, but Utah had that 3-1 series lead against Denver, and we know how that turned out. So let's see what happens there with Utah as we continue to move along in this NBA season. But those are just some of the keynotes. And lastly, with the Mark Cuban National Anthem deal, this was something that he brought upon himself because up until last week, we didn't even know that the National Anthem wasn't performed before these games, even in the preseason. And was he trying to bring attention to himself? Was he trying to get this thing off of his team that is underperformed and underachieved this year? Possibly so, because Mark Cuban has been known to do that. Granted, over the last maybe 10 years of his tenure as owner, he's kind of cooled off on that. We all know that once he got ownership of the Mavericks, it was all about him. It was about changing the, I don't want to say the game, but changing the landscape of owners in the NBA, not being the old boys club, being one of the new thinking, new age type of owner where he's going to be in contact with the fan base, that he's going to be more connected with his players, go on down the line. But for Cuban to bring this up here, I don't know if it was calculated. I would think it is just based on his track record. But as we all know, he was going to be in a losing battle when it comes to that. And mind you, with his issues and everything that's happening in the country, whether he's right, wrong, whether you hate it, love it, whatever, the bottom line is is that Adam Silver did step in and did say that the anthem had to be played. Now, my take on it, I could care less. And that doesn't make me unpatriotic. That doesn't make me un-American. And I've been watching sports forever, people. So I'm not on this nouveau, new wave kick when it comes to trying to be a progressive thinker or trying to just upset the apple cart. Because the anthem, we understand it's part of the fabric of any sporting event or anything that we've seen here when it comes to athletics. We get that. And of course, it's tradition. Understood. But how I look at it, because it's become so polarizing, to me, I could care less. You think I'm going to go crazy that they're not going to perform the anthem before a game? Because to me, at the end of the day, it's about the game itself. It's not about the anthem. Yes, we get it. The Super Bowl, is gonna, they're going to have the anthem because of the way the event and how that's structured, understood. Or an NBA final or what have you. But to me, it's neither here nor there. Because again, I'm not there to stand up for the anthem. I'm not there to pledge my allegiance. Yes, I am a citizen of this country. Yes, have I stood in the past? Absolutely. That doesn't mean I'm going to change my stance the next time these arenas are going to start opening and stadiums, etc. But please, if I happen to be in the bathroom at that time, I'm not going to race out of the bathroom just to stand in my seat and put my hand over my heart or take my hat off and put it over my heart. So just because I don't do that or I don't want to do that doesn't make me a citizen of this country or patriotic. I mean, it's just nonsense. And at the end of the day, it's all about preference and respect people's preferences. Now with Cuban, again, nobody knew about it until he brought it up. And who knows if somebody would have brought it up, then maybe it would have been even more of an issue because why was Cuban hiding this or why haven't anybody else reported it? Whatever it is. But to me, it's just one of those issues where if you don't have it, that's fine. And if it's still there, okay, great. But, jeez, I don't I mean, I mean, that's all there is to it. I, I don't know more to say about it. I really don't. 
people could kill Cuban all they want because they have a disdain for him, whatever. That's fine. Or if they want to support him for that matter, that's fine too. Uh, To me, I could care less. And that's just how it is. Let's move from there. And quickly, when you look at the NBA right now, the Western Conference has become very intriguing here. The East, uh, what is there to discuss? I mean, think about this. With the Celtics in the fifth spot right now, and I know it's too early to get into playoff positioning and things of that nature, but once you get from six down, everybody's under 500. So the East is like typical East. We thought it was going to be more of a powerhouse this year considering what Brooklyn was going to do. And we know that they've underachieved despite the fact that they're four games over 500 and Kyrie's been out of the lineup and now Durant's out and Harden didn't come until the middle of last month. We get that. But you look at the Hawks, they've certainly underachieved. Even to a certain extent, the Raptors. I mean, not a lot of people thought the Raptors were going to be in the top three in the East, but I guess maybe being displaced down in Tampa and not really getting their bearings and their environment settled, that may have something to do with it. So the East is pretty much underachieved if you're outside of Philly, Milwaukee, and Brooklyn. But the West I find intriguing because a couple of teams that I looked at at the beginning of the year and I had to, they had to show and prove to me, one is the Phoenix Suns. And the Suns right now are on a streak where they won six in a row and they are currently two and a half games behind the Clippers in the West. And I still need to see more. Just because they had this 17-9 start or just because where they're at right now doesn't mean they've arrived or they're a team to be reckoned with. There's still a lot of basketball to be played as we know. And because they're a young team, even though anchored by the point guard and Chris Paul, there's still a lot to be desired or still a lot for me to see in order to have my cash register ringing for me to be sold on whether or not Phoenix is going to be a team that's going to not only win a round, but maybe even go to a conference final. So that's one team. The other team is Portland. They've turned their season around big time because if you recall, earlier in the season, they were hanging around the 8, 9, 10 range, but they've turned it up and they play pretty well. Same for San Antonio. They've really flown under the radar here now at 16 and 11. So when you look at some of these teams... And granted, there's been some disappointments there out west too. A lot of people thought New Orleans is going to take a step up and they have not played well there. You wonder what the marriage is going to be like with Stan Van Gundy and its players. I thought maybe it'd work only because you have an older guy with youth and maybe even though he could be a little bit cantankerous at times, but knowing that this was going to be Stan Van Gundy's last shot to coach in the NBA, in my opinion, that he would at least conform a little bit and not to say I have my finger on the pulse there and what's happening in New Orleans, but as we see right now, it certainly have not panned out the way they've liked. And even Dallas, for what we mentioned before, how they've struggled, although they played a little bit better recently, but they have not been the team that a lot of people thought there would be, especially where Luka Doncic was going to be a guy that was going to contend for an MVP and take another step and leap forward, not only as far as him and his individual play, but as a team on a whole. And you got to wonder if Chris Stapps Porzingis is ever going to pan out to be that guy who's going to be the Robin to Luca's Batman. You can't see it in flashes. You can't see it in stretches. You got to see that consistency. And not that I'm following the Mavericks day in and day out, but based on what I've read and some of the things I've seen, he has not really been a force down there that a lot of people thought he would be. So that's how the West is shaping up. Still plenty of basketball to be played, as we know. And let me transition that. From the NBA to the NHL, and for this reason only, the NBA has had their instances with COVID as we've seen, whether you're the Washington Wizards, 
whether you're the Celtics, therefore stretch to where games had to get postponed, but not to the tune of not one team, not two, but five or six teams being affected by COVID. And it's crazy as this may sound, but how are you the NHL and you put forth four realigned divisions and in those divisions, and I'm just going to take the East for an example. You, When you look at the East, all these teams pretty much play in a cluster in the Northeast where the furthest team North is Buffalo and the furthest team South is the Washington Capitals. And then when you look on the map, furthest West is Pittsburgh. And then you have all the other teams that are pretty much clustered in the middle there. Obviously the two New York teams, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Boston, that's a little bit north of, of course, New York, but still, all those teams. And why is it that the Devils, the Flyers, and the Penguins, or excuse me, and the Bruins are the teams that have been, maybe, if not affected the most, but just affected at all? Like, what is going on here? And even Buffalo, that's a team I really wanted to add in there too, Buffalo. Because when you break down this whole scenario with all these teams that have been missing these games, it makes you wonder... If it's not the players or the coaches that are being affected or have been infected, but what's going on with the locker room staff, the equipment staff, training, etc., where these teams are just being impacted, it seems, day in, day out to the tune where the Devils and the Sabres, they haven't played since they last played each other going back to January 31st. I mean, think about that. That's over two weeks. And these teams have not played since then. So if you have all these teams that are playing pretty much within, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, within a two to 300 mile radius, and you're playing a lot of these games back to back. So it's not as if one night you go in here and the next night you go in there. It's not the NBA where they're literally flying all over the country. And although there have been some cases and some games being postponed and haven't been rescheduled from what I know as far as the NBA goes, but... How has the NHL been so much more impacted by this and with the way everything is set up that their season is now starting to fall apart where the NBA, they're going away pretty much scot-free? How does that work? And this NHL season, which is now just a shade over a month old, they've had to postpone 35 games and now 17 of them have yet to be rescheduled and counting, I might add. Because the Devils, their next game, who knows if they're going to play, Same for Buffalo. You just had Minnesota, the Wild, they were cleared to resume team activities as they're scheduled to play in LA tomorrow. And they haven't played a game since February the 2nd. And then the Avalanche just got back last night after missing four games in which their last game was the front end of a back-to-back against Minnesota. And Minnesota, as I just mentioned, let's see if they have a game in LA tomorrow. Now, Colorado played Vegas last night and lost one nothing, so they had the layoff, but what is happening with this league? And they've increased their protocols now. I don't have a whole list of what that is, but if the players and coaches have done their due diligence, and mind you, the Capitals were also at fault earlier this year where they didn't miss, if any, even many games, but remember, you had... Alexander Ovechkin gone for two weeks because he contracted COVID due to the close contact of other teammates being in their hotel rooms. And we understand they get tested every day, but we know the protocols. You can't really 
have that close proximity once you get outside of the rink. And that's what happened with him. But if the players and the coaches, for the most part, are following the protocol, what's happening with the the staffs of these teams? Because how is it that teams are getting knocked off days and weeks at a time where they're not playing these games and how the hell are they going to be rescheduled? You're going to be playing the Stanley Cup final at the start of the football season. I tell you, the NHL right now, I'm sure if you put truth serum in Gary Bettman, he would halt the season now. He would. But he knows that the owners have been bleeding money. And not that I'm boohooing on the owners by any stretch, but they're just going to try to get through this as best as possible. But you have to wonder, if they're not going to reschedule these games and how this is going to affect when it comes time for the postseason, how legit is this season going to be? It's going to be an absolute farce. And I'm not trying to say that they got to think about this right this very second and make sure that these games are rescheduled right now. We get that they have some time and maybe a little bit of flexibility here. But it's just beyond comprehension to think that with the way the schedule's constructed, and like I said, you have a ton of these back-to-back games, and the travel has been cut down significantly. But they have the most COVID cases known to man when it comes to all the sports that are happening now. And the NBA, like I said just a few minutes ago, They've been impacted, but geez, nothing like this. I mean, this is a joke. But we'll see what happens. And the Flyers, they're another team that's also been affected as they had their game postponed with the Rangers there yesterday. And their next game is scheduled for Thursday against the Rangers. I just don't understand how this has all come about. I really don't. I mean, it it can't be all on the players and coaches. And we understand that. There has to be some security and there's only but a handful of people that could be a part of these organizations as far as, like I said, not just the being a coach or a player on the team. But man, I mean, geez, are these people that reckless or thumbing their nose up at the virus to think that, oh, I'm not going to get it or just look at it like, oh, I'll be fine. And that's that, not knowing the impact that it's going to have not only just on your fellow teammates coaches etc but just the organization and then the league on a whole I I listen I know it's tough just to go from hotel to rink to plane to home stay home understood but anyway one thing I do like and I've seen here over the course of the last week or so is that the games have been more physical I get that it's not going to be anything close to what it was 35, 40 years ago. And I understand that's an eternity right now. It's not as if the NHL, the way the league is played now, it's not like in the early, mid-2000s that the game was that much different than what it is today. But I love the physical play. I watched that Ranger Bruin game on Friday night. And just to know that there were three fights there in the second period, man, that just had my juices flowing. And I get that it's not Nevin Marquardt versus George McPhee. Look it up, YouTube. A great fight between those two guys back in the 80s. But still, it's something. Better than nothing. It's better than guys jabbing their sticks at everybody or fake fighting. or And that's just a disgrace. I, I've seen some of that too where they just rather wrestle with one another and not even throw a punch. And with the shields and everything, I know it makes it even tougher. I could talk about this forever, people. But I just like the physicality, the game is increased, and the chippiness because it's part of the sport. 
at least that's what it was when I loved it and watched it on a day-to-day basis. And as we know, now it's Disney on ice. And I get that I'm in the minority when it comes to that. And there's a lot of the younger fan and even some of the guys, my guy Headstyle in Minnesota, who's been on this podcast before, he loves the way the game is now. And I get it maybe more barbaric and even a little bit more of a prehistoric approach. But to me, that's when the game was at its peak. And I'm sorry, you cannot change my mind to even remotely think that the game is better now than it was 30 years ago. Sorry. (laughs) You can try to convince me of that until you're blue in the face. And sorry, like I said earlier, the cash register is not going to ring because you're not going to sell here. Also, real quick, Ron Hextall is your new GM in Pittsburgh. Remember Jim Rutherford? He left due to health issues earlier. And they also have a new hockey ops in place in a one Brian Burke. And he's been around the league forever. So let's see what the Penguins will do here as we not only get deeper into a season, but also if they make any type of reinforcements come the trade deadline and so on. And quickly, as we look at the standings, Tampa is right now a team that looks like they're going to be a threat to win a cup very early still, but they control the central there, 10-2-1, and the Panthers have played pretty well there as they're just three points behind them in a race for the top spot in the central. Bruins right now playing well, although they lost to the Islanders the other day, they had that sweep against the Rangers here in New York last week into the weekend. The Capitals have hit the skids here a little bit as they've lost four in a row. Now, mind you, they started off without a regulation loss. And since then, that's all they've been doing. They've been losing a regulation. So the Capitals need to get themselves back on the beam as far as the East is concerned. As for the North, the Maple Leafs continue to rule the roost there at the top of the division. 23 points, continuing to play well. Canadians follow that three points behind. And that's pretty much been a lackluster division when you think about it. And... I know for maybe the diehard hockey fan as they're following it second by second. But when you look at the teams in the north, not a lot of juice there when it comes to the teams north of the border. Maybe that's just me. Who knows? And then out west, Vegas continues to play well. St. Louis has ratcheted up a little bit. Remember, they start off a little bit slow, but now they're playing well. And then you have the rest of the division falling suit. Colorado, a team a lot of people expected to do well. They've... eh, been so-so, and then you have you know Anaheim, Arizona, Minnesota, etc. to play out the string there at the West, and that's what you have there with the NHL. Now, let me turn my attention to football before I get to a few other things, because although that this is the sports dead zone, but this is one week where there's been a lot of sports, and for me to even touch on at the very top, now Australian Open's going on, you know, that's something that I'm going to keep my eyes open for, because it is a major Grand Slam tournament. So you know I'm going to have to come up with some thoughts and feelings about that. The MMA, which I've been in and out on, and not to say that I've been on top of this last fight here over the weekend, but there was a lot of storylines that came out of that, which I found very fascinating and intriguing. And then lastly, the Daytona 500. I mean, I don't even think I've talked NASCAR in the almost three years I've been doing this podcast. And sadly, I'm going to throw ice cold water on it, considering that there was a rain delay to the tune where the race didn't finish until a quarter after, I think it was a quarter after midnight. So I'm sure the suits at Fox, which I believe host the Daytona 500, 
as you know, I like to say, spitting up the Pinot Grigio and the kale salad, knowing that they had a wreck at the start of it, a fiery wreck at the end of it, and then it didn't finish until well past midnight. Uh, just not a good look for the sport of auto racing there. But I'll touch on that later. Let me get to the NFL and a few things that have gone on there. And I'm not going to, first off, I'm not going to kill Brady with the whole celebration. Knowing that he threw the Lombardi trophy 15 feet to the next boat where Cameron Brake caught it, that was the beginning of the end because that it was so unlike Tom Brady that when I saw him do that, or first when I read about it, I said, wait a minute, Tom Brady did what? You can see Gronk doing that. But for Brady to do that, it made me think, wow, that was so unlike him to do that. Maybe he was just caught up in the moment. But then shortly thereafter, you see the video of him being held as he stumbled off the boat. I guess he had a little bit too much avocado tequila. And you know what? Let the guy live. I know people want, probably want to get on Brady right now. The clean cut, good boy image. And we get that everybody's sick of Tom Brady at this point. Winning all the time. And no matter what team, whether it's six times in New England or now that his first year in Tampa, that they just had enough of Tom Brady. But I didn't look at that as like, oh, geez, what was he doing? Hey, caught up in the moment. He threw the trophy over 15 feet. And I guess if it was anybody but Tom Brady, it probably would have fell in the river or it would have fell down to the bottom of the sea there or wherever they were in Tampa. But because it's who he is, are you surprised that he was able to complete that? That's just my point. So I'm not going to get too wrapped up in that. But as far as the other stuff that's gone on last week, the first thing, Russell Wilson, I know he's frustrated and he's getting up there in age. I know he's still young. He still has plenty of years left. What is he, 30, 31 tops? And I know he's been under siege by his offensive line over the last few years. But knowing that he came out and said that he wants better protection and that there's been reports that he wants to have some say on personnel decisions, all right, he's the quarterback. He's the guy that without him, you pretty much have no team. But for Russell Wilson, however he wants to spin that, or even to a certain extent, for him to try to get some buzz to make ownership or management make some changes here, doesn't come as a surprise, but he does need to ease back even though he has won a Super Bowl. You know, this isn't a guy who's a two or three time MVP. This isn't a guy that has two or three rings in his case there or in his safe deposit box somewhere in uh, the Pacific Northwest or wherever he lives in the offseason. And I like Russell Wilson. I'm not trying to pile on him or say, oh, who are you to say this or whatever? Because we get, if you're the head of that franchise if on the field, as far as your roster is concerned, and you're going to make statements like that, like I said, it doesn't come as a surprise. But at the same time, it's one of those things that if he's looking for an exit or looking for an angle or what have you, just try to do that on the low. Don't come out and say, oh, I need better protection. I need this, I need that to do it through the press. This doesn't look good. This is a bad optic. Now, if you said that to them, and I don't know what the reports were as far as, did he go to management and say, hey, I want a better offensive line, or hey, I want to be a part of personnel, or this, that, and the third, and then he comes out in the press, fine. But we all know this is usually the other way around. Somebody's going to ask him a question. They're going to talk about, hey, this guy's retiring, that guy's retiring, you're getting up there in age. What do you think about your future? And if he says, yeah, if I had better protection or yeah, if I had some say in personnel, then who knows? Maybe things would be better around here. We don't know the whole scope of how these reports or how what's been taken out of context or whatever. But again, it just doesn't look good if you're Russell Wilson. 
If he did go to management, my apologies. Then you know what? He has a right to say what he wants. And he still has a right to say regardless. But it just doesn't look good if he's going through the media to get to management. And who knows? With all the reports about guys going here, guys going there. When we look at even Aaron Rodgers. Despite the ownership vociferously coming out saying that Aaron Rodgers is not going anywhere. And you hear about Deshaun Watson. All these other reports. You would think that Wilson's going to still be a Seattle Seahawk when it's all said and done. I'd be shocked if they're even thinking about shipping him or trading him somewhere. And who knows? Based on what I talked about last week with Matthew Stafford and what he netted coming back, granted that Detroit had to pay Goff all that money, so they asked for those extra number one picks. But it remains to be seen how that's going to unfold there up in Seattle. Then you had the Pouncey brothers, both Mike and Marquise, retire through Ramon Foster, the old retired Steeler offensive lineman himself. Well, he just retired last year. I don't want to call him old, so Ramon, my apologies. But with now the Pouncey brothers leaving, and in particular Marquise, what does this mean for Ben Roethlisberger and his decision moving forward? Because as we know, and what we've heard so far, that he wants to stay on the team. He's willing to take a pay cut. We don't know how much of a pay cut, but we know the cap scenario with the Steelers with Vance McDonald retiring and also now Marquise Pouncey retiring, it does free up a lot more money, although there's some dead money that's going to be on the cap, but I believe it frees up $11 million. So if Roethlisberger could take that pay cut, that could free up who knows how much more. But with that being said, Roethlisberger did say as long as Pouncey was on the team that he was going to stay on this team. But with Pouncey gone, and even though with one more year, is that going to be enough for him to say, you know what, I'm ready to hang it up as well. And hopefully the Steelers get an answer soon because think about this. The Steelers already need to start looking for who their future quarterback is because as I've said time after time after time, let Roethlisberger come back for one more year and granted that he wants to come back with a pay cut, he wants to be part of the team. I get it's before Pouncey's announcement, but everything looks fine and dandy up until this point. But hopefully he'll come back with a decision here over the course of the next couple of weeks because... As I said, the Steelers need to start looking for the next quarterback. So does that mean in this upcoming draft? Or on somebody else's roster? Who knows? But I would think that the management would go to Ben and say what your decision is going to be. And even in the process of doing that to say, we're going to start looking for our next quarterback because this is going to be it for you. We know you have one more year left on your deal. As much as we love you, But we're going to have to look elsewhere for our quarterback. And unfortunately, we're going to have to start looking now whether you're going to be a part of this team or not. You're the starter. You're our guy. No ifs, ands, buts about it. But for the future of this organization, we're going to have to start looking. So hopefully there could be a meeting of the minds between Ben and ownership, management, etc. for them to come together and agree on that so there could be a seamless transition here because I could see this ended up being a An out-and-out disaster. So hopefully that will play out nicely when usually that doesn't seem to be the case. Then you had J.J. Watt on Friday asked to be released upon his request and he had the video there that he posted on Twitter and now you have all these teams that are part of the discussion, one of them being the Steelers and understandably so because both of his brothers play on the team and the one Trent Jordan Watt and That's TJ. And uh, Derek Watt, the fullback. 
First off, do I like him being in a Steeler uniform? I'll have to say this. If the Steelers are really going to contend next year, and I think that's where J.J. Watt wants to go. He wants to go to a team that's going to win next year, as he said. He doesn't have 10 more years left. He probably doesn't have five more years left in the league. So now it's about winning a ring. Do the Steelers, as the way they're constructed right now, can they go to Super Bowl? They can, but there's a lot of work to be done on that roster and even with guys that in their own locker room. The Juju Smith-Schusters, even T.J. Watt, they're going to have to resign at some point. Bud Dupree, etc. I think Watt would be a good fit. I understand that when you look at the Steeler defensive line right now, it's Stephon Tuitt and Cameron Hayward, who are two guys that have been mainstays on this team for years. And in the middle, you had Tyson Alualu, but we know Watt's not going to play in the middle. If he's going to be a substitution guy or a rotation guy, and if he wants to accept that and not really get paid in the process, but for the potential of winning a ring, then fine. But I don't think he's going to come to Pittsburgh just based on all that and even with his brothers there. He's going to want to go to a team that's going to win and win now. Not just the possibility or maybe the potential of winning. He's going to want to go to either Kansas City. He's going to want to go to Green Bay. He's going to want to go to maybe even Tampa Bay. So those are going to be the teams that will, I'm not saying Tampa's going to be looking for services by any stretch, but those are the teams that he's going to go to. But one thing about J.J. Watt, and you have to beware, is that in the big game, in a huge spot, and I've said this time after time, he has never shown up. Just look at all the playoff games he's played in. And he could get all the sacks against Jacksonville. He could get all the sacks against the, well, the Cleveland Browns of years past. I mean, now, of course, Cleveland's a much better team. But uh, he could get against the Jets. He could get all these sacks against these teams. But when it comes January, he's invisible. And that's the one thing you got to worry about when it comes to him not to say he's going to be worth a fortune or you're going to have to spend a ton of money on him, but, and you also got to worry about injuries. Mind you, he did go through a whole 16-game season this year, but between 2015 and this past year, he had been in and out of the lineup and even on IR for many seasons in between. So you do have to worry about that. Now, in Jacksonville, speaking of which, you had that situation where Urban Meyer hired Chris Doyle, who was a former strength coach at Iowa, and then... Kudos to Doyle on this. He resigned knowing that there was traction among various circles, including the Fritz Pollard Alliance. And if you're wondering, who the hell is the Fritz Pollard Alliance? It's an organization that's devoted to promoting diversity in the NFL. And for all the accusations and reports in Iowa about racist remarks and comments that obviously are just very sensitive. And even though... Urban Meyer said that he went through the whole process, he vetted him, he made sure and felt in his heart that he was ready to be part of a staff. Obviously, Urban Meyer isn't part of this cancel culture, which I get that everybody's on board in this day and age, or so it seems. But when it comes to, especially this climate right now, when it comes to race, when it comes to bullying, which was also part of that report that he's been accused of, I'm far from the morality police people, but we have to call like we see it. That's a guy you got to stay away from. It just is. You can't have that hanging over your franchise, your organization, especially now that you're about to get a new quarterback in here. Mind you, he's going to need shoulder surgery, despite his pro day that he had the other day was successful, but he's going to need surgery where he's going to be out for about five to six months. So you got that to deal with Jacksonville. And then a new coach where... 
I can't fully trust 100% despite how brilliant he is, but he's had his issues where health has gotten in the way and he had to all of a sudden retire or bow out from the position, whereas you saw there at Ohio State just recently. So they couldn't have a guy like Chris Doyle as part of their organization here knowing that they were going to be bombarded not only just with this alliance, but I'm sure from all other factions and sections of class, creed, race, where they, how are you going to hire this guy, in particular with what's going on in this country in this day and age? It's unacceptable. So they were able to take care of that. And then uh, lastly, you have Richard Sherman, who came out and stated that he's going to be a free agent and chances are he's not going to re-up with San Francisco, that he has two more years left in him before retirement. Now, Sherman, we all know, he's a Hall of Fame corner. He's going to go into Canton when it's all said and done, but he's had these injuries, including that Achilles. He is not the same player. Maybe he's going to be more of a slot guy. I wouldn't count him being on the guy that you saw of the Legion of Boom, but if he could play that slot and maybe occasionally go out there and guard, not even the top corner, but maybe the second corner, then fine. I know he's going to probably ask for a lot of money considering this will be his last big contract, but he's another buyer beware in that regard because... People may be seduced by the allure of Richard Sherman and brilliant career. And I like him as a player. How could you not? But we all know he has lost a step since his days as a Seahawk defensive back. So we'll see where Sherman goes over the course of this offseason. All right, now let me get to a few of these other topics. College basketball, eh, I know I didn't touch on that before. Real quick. Gonzaga and Baylor, your top two, no surprise there. Michigan, who finally had a game for the first time in three weeks. They beat Wisconsin there yesterday, so now they're ranked number three. Followed by Ohio State, Villanova, Illinois, Texas Tech, which will probably drop down in the rankings from seven to maybe outside of the top ten as they lost to West Virginia. And then you have Houston, Virginia, and Missouri. And Missouri will fall because they also lost to Mississippi and Arkansas over the past week. And college basketball, all you got to know is this. When you have these two teams, Loyola Chicago and Rutgers right across the river here, ranked in the top 25, but Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky, Kansas, and UCLA are not. And UCLA, although from a historic standpoint, they are the Bruins and John Wooden, Lou Alcindor, Bill Walton, those wonderful classic all-time great teams of the 70s, but they are still UCLA when you look at the grand scheme of things. None of those teams are ranked in the top 25, but those two are. That's all you need to know about this college basketball season, but we'll dive into that a little bit more, obviously, as we get deeper into the month and into March when the tournament will commence. Now, let me get to these three quick things. I'll start off with the Australian Open. For the most part, it's pretty much been chalk. I get that you've had a couple of upsets here, but they've been in the later rounds. Dominic team, who lost here in the fourth round to Grigor Dimitrov. Team was a guy that a lot of people thought could get back to a an Australian final, but you're not going to see him on the men's side. But pretty much you have four of the top five there as you approach this second week. You still have Djokovic there who was nursing an abdominal injury where he even said that if it wasn't because of the Australian Open, he would have retired from the tournament. But we know the Australian, this is his tournament the way the French Open is to Rafael Nadal. He's won eight of these Australian Opens and on the verge of winning nine, which is a record, of course. So there was no way he was going to bow out of this tournament. So he's still alive. We know Rafael Nadal is. Daniil Medvedev. And then Stefanos Tsitsipas, who is the fifth-ranked overall. He will actually go up 
I believe against Nadal, if I'm not mistaken, tomorrow as we lead that into the weekend. Now, as far as the women are concerned, the one big story coming out of here, especially now that we've reached the quarterfinals, is the daughter of the Buffalo Bills and Sabres owners and Jessica Pagula. And what she's done here to get to this point, she's only beaten Victoria Azarenka, who's won the tournament twice. She's also beaten Samantha Solstor, who in the past has won a major Grand Slam tournament. And then she just recently beat the number five women's tennis player in the world, Alina Zvitalina, as she will move on and face Jennifer Brady, who's also an American and ranked 22nd in the world. And with the women's side, you still have three of the top five left. Sophia Kennan, who won last year. She lost in the second round. She was the one player of note who lost early on. So she's not going to be there to be a repeat champion or at least defend her title. But you still have Simona Halep, who's going to go up against Serena in a matchup, I believe, today or pretty much tomorrow because remember, they're 12 hours ahead of us. So you're going to have those two face off. You still have Naomi Osaka. You still have the number one seed in Ashley Barty. So you still have the top players in each of the men's and women's still around. And we'll see how that shakes down as we get to the weekend and crown a champion there and discuss it next week. So your Australian Open, who has been, like I said, pretty much chalk. Not any major upsets. We know Venus lost last week. But Venus, as we know, she's pretty much just hanging on right now. And that's not a knock. She's got to be, what, 41 years old, 42? So just to give her that, that she's still out there performing at this age, just says it all. But we know she's not going to be the champion that she once was. So that's what you got from down under. Before I get to the Daytona 500, I want to get to the MMA fight from Saturday night. We had Kamaru Usman defeat Gilbert Burns by TKO to retain his welterweight title. And the reason why I bring this up is twofold. Not only did he win his 13th straight win in that division, which breaks Georgia St. Pierre's record for most consecutive wins, and I believe all time is Anderson Silva for 16. Now Silva, I don't believe, is a welterweight. But that is the most consecutive victories in MMA history. But as a welterweight, he now owns that, as I just mentioned, him surpassing St. Pierre. But him having to fight Gilbert Burns, and I can only imagine. They were teammates back in 2012 in South Florida where they were both coming up in the ranks there as a professional fighter. You could tell that even during the match, especially at the one point where Burns looked like he was about to, I'm not going to say break down and cry, but you could tell that he was even emotional knowing that he was going up against his boy. And even then, Burns clocked Usman with a right there in that first round where, man, that would have had anybody go down for the count. Did buckle him. And that was a point where Burns could have finished Usman, but he even said in the post-match that he was just undisciplined. I'm sure his... Head was in it, but his heart was just elsewhere. And that had to be tough for two guys. Like I said, they were buddies. And even at the end, they both embraced there in the octagon to the point where Usman even said that he almost started bawling because of who he was fighting and just everything at stake. And not only that, but that record, I'm sure I was playing in the back of his mind. And I can't even imagine. You know, boxing is a lot different from a standpoint of, all right, you're going to box against someone who's your friend or someone that you know or have known for a long time. And even though, right, you're going to do your best to beat him. But boxing, it's much different than it is with UFC. UFC is just so much more, for me at least, 
I understand maybe they're the younger fan they're not thinking so, but it's just more brutal. There are pretty much no rules in comparison to boxing. You know, obviously boxing is just using strategically your fists, whereas we all know MMA, you could kick, you could strangle, borderline. I'm, just, I'm not going to go there as far as strangle to death, but for those who watch MMA, you understand. And I can't even imagine going up against somebody that you've known for so long and that you pretty much got to literally not only knock his block off, but at the same time do it at whatever costs. Got to be tough. So big up to both of those guys, not even just Usman, but even to Burns for having to go through that, not only just from a mental, but also psychological and spiritual level. So I just had to bring that up and I just found that fascinating. And then lastly, with the Daytona 500, and I understand that this is not my lane, no pun intended, but we all know the Daytona 500 is the Super Bowl of racing. And to me, as a boy growing up, I always thought the Super Bowl of racing was the Indy 500, but that's no longer the case, as we're now so far removed from the days of Al Unser Jr., A.J. Foyt, Jackie Stewart, Mario Andretti, how could you forget him? I mean, those are the guys that I grew up with when it comes to racing. It wasn't until later on where the Dale Earnhardt's of the world, the Richard Petty's, all these other racers, Jimmy Johnson's, you can go through the whole list, that have become pillars of the NASCAR scene. And although I didn't watch a second of this, I did follow from time to time just to see what was going on because it is such a big event. And knowing that literally 15 minutes, or 15 laps, I should say, excuse me, into the race, you had this 16-car pileup, which thankfully nobody was hurt. But it doesn't bring a good optic where the crash becomes part of the main theme of your Super Bowl, quote-unquote, event here for racing and for NASCAR. And then they had this long rain delay, which pretty much put a whole damper on it because anytime you have a rain delay and especially when it's in Florida and you know from one second to the next it could either pour for 15 minutes or it could be a steady rain throughout the course of an afternoon as we saw here to when they resumed and then had to play deep into the night past midnight to where you have this final stretch over the course of the last lap where you had this wreck of fire Cars just strewn all over the place, out of control, circling throughout the course of the track. And that's going to take away the victory for one Michael McDowell, who wasn't even favored. I believe it was, I don't even know what his odds were, I think 20 to 1 or whatever it was. And you had a couple of guys that were leading at the top of the leaderboard that looked like they were going to finish, but they were part of this wreck here. And because of that, McDowell ended up being your Daytona 500 winner. Uh, just a bad look for racing. I understand they couldn't control the rain. And to a certain extent, you can't even control the crashes. But that's going to take precedence over this as people look back on this for the 2021 Daytona 500. They're going to say, oh yeah, this thing was well past my bedtime. And I had to wake up to find out who won the next day. Only to put of note that the fiery wreck at the end on the last lap pretty much was the result of McDowell winning the race in the first place. So, and I'm not trying to pile on them people. I got to call it as it is, but, and I understand there's a few of you out there who follow NASCAR or diehard NASCAR fans are probably saying, Jay Reels, come on, you don't even know what you're talking about. You never talk about NASCAR or whatever. And you know what? Hey, hen, 
raised high, full transparency, you know it. I'm not going to fake the funk to you people. Not at all. But I've watched sports long enough. And even if I was not a football fan, and if I looked at that Super Bowl last week and I saw the score 31-9, I am not going to say that, oh, that had to be a classic game. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, the game was terrible. So even if you parachute me into Daytona, and I see this fiery wreck at the end, or the smoke is starting to clear, and I go to somebody and I say, what the hell happened? And they're going to say, well, this race just ended 15 minutes after midnight, and you had a crash 15 laps in, a rain delay in between, and a crash here at the end, where the winner, who probably shouldn't have won because of this crash, is Michael McDowell. I'm going to say, oh my God, this thing was a disaster. How could it not? So I don't have to be the NASCAR aficionado for me to put my opinions out there to say that, oh, this is a classic race. Please. This is one that I'm sure NASCAR would just want to forget. That's all I'm trying to say here. And that one you can't disagree with because, again, Super Bowls, World Series, any event you could talk about that I follow second after second, I'll be the first to tell you, oh my God, that was an awful game or an awful performance or it was a waste of time. And you know that. That's where I hold myself accountable, people. So, I get I probably ruffled a few feathers there for the NASCAR crowd, that corner. But anybody who watches sports or follows sports would say the same thing. And that's all I'm trying to say here. All right, let me close out here with my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week, and unfortunately I mentioned this last week, Marty Schottenheimer, the one-time Cleveland Brown, Kansas City Chief, San Diego Charger and Washington football team coach died at the age of 77. He was in hospice as of my last recording and unfortunately just hours after that passed away, diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease back in 2014, mentioned about the hospice care. We know about his career, over 200 wins. A lot of people now feel they should lobby him for the Hall of Fame, which right now that's not to be discussed. We could talk about that some other time. But thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Schottenheimer family, including Brian Schottenheimer, his son, who is the one-time Seahawk coordinator just this past year. So NFL and football overall had lost another true, I'll say champion from this regard. He was a well-revered and well-respected coach throughout the National Football League and just sad to see him go here. So... Prayers and condolences again go out to the Schottenheimer family. And then on the flip side of that, my zero of the week is to the Washington Post. Because how in the hell in their obit to the aforementioned Schottenheimer that they're going to say Marty Schottenheimer, whose teams wilted in the postseason, died at the age of 77. Jeez. Forget about kicking the man when he's down. Not only did they throw the dirt on him, but they put the tombstone and etch that into the tombstone to Marty Schottenheimer. Can we just let the guy rest in peace? See, I didn't go there myself and I could have gone there as far as his postseason record is concerned, but no. But we'll talk about that some other time or even his Hall of Fame candidacy, etc. But geez, for the Washington Post, and I get he was there for one year and it didn't work out. Mind you, he had an 8-8 eight and eight season where he started off 0-5. So let's put that in perspective. But terrible job by the Washington Post. Shame on you guys, you are my zero of the week. And that'll do it there for episode 178. Again, I appreciate you all for taking the time out to listen to what it is I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports. So whether you were downloading this from your favorite podcast platform or listening to this 
on my website at www.jreels.com. Again, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. But if you haven't done so, as I say each and every week, and as I said at the top, just to help the growth and expansion of this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review on wherever you get your podcasts. You know the platforms, Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, etc. If you could do that, all that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there. So in turn, I could try to generate the interest with those guests who aren't familiar with me or the podcast, whether it's the former current athlete, the broadcaster, writer, blogger, studio host, to have them share their experiences with me. So in turn, I could share that with you guys. So the more they know about it, the more they hear about the J Reels podcast because of your participation, I would greatly appreciate that. So please subscribe, rate, and review when you can, ASAP, all that and then some. And if you want to send me a message, whether a direct message on my social media accounts or an old-fashioned way by email, you could do so by going to Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels podcast, which is strictly on sports. On Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, and then by email, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please send any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be. I'll be willing to and open to respond at my earliest convenience as I love to interact with you guys. And then finally, to contribute to this podcast, to the production of it, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's spelled P as in Paul, A T as in Tom. R-E-O-N is a Nancy, Patreon. Whatever you want to contribute to that, again, greatly appreciate it. From the bottom of my heart, to the website, to the maintenance of the website, the upgrade of equipment, anything that has to do with this podcast, putting it out with the quality and consistency that I do. Uh, once again, if you can contribute to it, that, I would greatly appreciate it because if it's your first time, your 10th time, or even your 178th time, It's in the blood, people. It's in my DNA, not only talking sports, but sharing my thoughts, opinions, analysis to entertain and inform you guys because of everything that goes on and the sports that I love to talk about, whether it's on the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.